Hey everybody, you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, the conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity. Today, I am pleased to welcome back uh, Ringo-nominated writer Frank Gogol, who you may know from The Comic Grief. Actually, more recently, we spoke about the comic No Heroin through SourcePoint Press back on episode 154. But I'm sure most of you probably remember him mostly through the critically acclaimed coming-of-age miniseries Dead and Kids, also through SourcePoint Press. It's worth noting that even before we even get into what we're going to talk about today, uh, that series has become something of like a sought-after gem it's sold out multiple times, gone through multiple printings, and matter of fact, issues number one and two broke into the top 400 worldwide in sales, which is pretty wild. So um, back in episode 147, Frank and I, along with Chris Mad, uh, we spoke about that at Eastside Mags in Montclair, New Jersey, and that was a great time. I actually didn't see this coming, and I thought this is really cool, but what we're going to be speaking about today is Frank Gogol's next book, which is a follow-up two dead and kids entitled dead and kids the suburban job and it sounds like a really great story and you guys know me i was like talking about origins and how things came about so we're going to get into all that today but first and foremost frank uh thanks for stopping by and always a good time chatting with you hey thanks thanks for having me again and damn that was a hell of an intro like a lot, lot like specific like episodes and holy crap man that was that was great <laughs> um can i ask who has been on your show the most and how many more times do i need to come on to be the reigning champ oh my god okay so you're not the first person to ask this and i almost don't want to say a name out of pocket but oh gosh now you've got me thinking shoot um i know mario candelaria has been on quite a bit well, I'll catch up. I'll catch up. I'll just put more, I'll make more books and it'll happen. I, my new goal is not to make the best comics. It's to be the most appeared guest on every podcast I've ever been on. And, and then when I get that, I want every podcast host to make me like a wrestling belt. Okay. So that's the case. And it's definitely Mario Candelaria will definitely uh, be vying for that because you're not the first person who's asked. And for a very short period of time, there was almost like a little bit of match between a few creators as to who's been on more often than not. It was almost like Legolas and Gimli and Lord of the Rings where they would basically tally like how many kills they got mid battle. Yeah, exactly. And and listen, I just want to walk around conventions when they start back up, just covered in podcast wrestling championship belts. Like, that's, that's all I want. Oh, my God. Now I need to get shit. Now you said that. Now I actually want to do this to create my own podcast belt and just have like whoever has the most appearances duke it out on one episode and see who could just go back and forth. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I think it's a great idea. I've been pitching it to a lot of people. I'm still waiting for somebody to jump on it, man. Like I'm not used to having the things I pitch get like denied too. So, oh, okay, that's a... <laughs> man. This is starting to get a little rough. Okay, cool. <laughs> I digress. I digress. Thank you oh, for having man. me back. No, anytime. Um, I also do want to point out that you reteam with uh, a lot of your creative team from the original Dead and Kids. So we have uh, Chris Matt, who, again, we spoke to on episode 147 on covers. The Nad, Sid of a Cannon on art and colors. Sean Reinhart on letters. And Ryan Kincaid and Ben Templesmith doing incentive variants. And I know this is probably like a goofy question. You've probably been asked this already, but I do find this interesting. When you made Dead and Kids, you know, the first miniseries, I, I know you wanted the book to be successful, but... I don't even think you necessarily saw that it was going to like take off in the fashion that it did where it's like people wanted the book, but it was hard to find. And of course, not only just being hard to find, but it was very well received. 
And something that I know, just even in reading stories in any kind of medium, when someone makes something that's successful, when it comes to the follow-up, there's no doubt a lot of pressure to not only follow that up with equal success, but even surpass it. So how daunting was it to even just sit down and make another entry in this series without kind of freaking out about it? You know, it was it was a real mixed bag of of kind of feelings and challenges. Uh, I mean, like you said, writing a sequel is, especially when something's well received, is is tough. Like last night, I watched uh, the 2018 sequel to the original Halloween, which has had a bunch of other sequels, and now it's got right. different threads of sequels and reboots. And and I think about this a lot. Like, what makes a good sequel? And like, what are some of my favorite sequels? Like, there aren't too many that really work well. And that doesn't really give you like a good sample size for like examining what about those things worked well. Like, you, get, you know, you got Empire Strikes Back, you've got Aliens, um, T2. Um, so it's like a f- finite number of, of like really good examples. Um, um, so when Dead and Kids number one came out in, uh, I think, the first week of August last year, we, we knew what the pre-orders were. We knew what the reception was before it came out. And then like it did much better than we were in, in anticipating uh, when it finally did come out. So sometime between issue one and issue two, SourcePoint came to me and they said, hey, this book's doing really great. It's Don't quote me on this, but I think they told me at the time that it was their highest selling book uh, for a first issue of all time. Nice. Um, and, and yeah, they said, yeah. If, if you want to do more, we'll publish it. Like that was the sh- sort of short version of the conversation. They said, we would love to make more of this with you. And I didn't have a story planned. Like I didn't expect it to be successful. I didn't really think about the future. If you've read the book, uh, the, the ending of it kind of puts a pretty fine point on the story. And it would be kind of hard to dig into that story again without kind of like upending the impact of the ending. Um, right, Exactly. And then the other thing is just like I was kind of overwhelmed by the success of the book, honestly. Like I had like retailers calling me on my personal phone. I have no idea how they got my phone number, but for like two months. Oh, wow. Are you kidding me? That's kind of nuts. Like, I mean, that's kind of scary at first. Like, oh my God, like. <laughs> yeah. And then like, you know, I had done one book before that was really well received and, and sold pretty well, but it wasn't like a, like a mainstream single issue comic book. And, right. and like. I was hit with a wave and like, I'm a pretty adaptable guy. So like I, I rolled with the punches and kind of learned on the go and like, it, it was fine. But like, those were a couple of really long months when the, the book was coming out and like some big conventions in there, like near Comic-Con, like it was, it was pretty wild. Uh, but like when they came to me and asked me about a sequel, like I, I didn't know, like the, the kind of success of the book kind of turned me off the idea of wanting to do more a little bit, just at least at first, just cause I didn't really want to go through all that for a possible second half. And then like, you always worry, like, you know, when you have something that's that well received and people like that much, like doing another one's a real risky roll of the dice. Like, especially if it's like not good or not right. well received at least. I was just about to say, like, it's kind of hard. Cause it's like, okay, other than sticking the landing, there's that also that thing of, you know, and we're, you know, the internet and people think of yeah. like, oh, you're just doing it for the sake of just kind of cashing on the original success kind of thing. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing. Like people say no. that like it's a bad thing. Like if you have something successful and people want more of it, you should absolutely do more of it if you want to. Like this, I just, I don't understand that mentality. Um, but for me, I didn't have a story and I was, I was, yeah, I was writing no heroin at the time. I actually wrote the first issue of no heroin before I wrote dead end kids. And then I wrote the rest of it after dead end kids came out. So like it was, a lot of rolling over and going back and forth at the time. Um, and like, I, like I said, I just, I didn't want to 
shit the bed doing a second one and have it not live up to the first one. Um, but I also didn't want to tell them no because you, you never know. So I, I said maybe, like a real soft maybe. Um, <laughs> and I knew no heroin was coming and I knew it was on the schedule for the next year. So I, you know, I just kind of, I knew I had some time to think about it. Uh, so I, like I just, I did. That's what I did. I sat with it for a while and I kind of thought about like what a next book would look like given like, you know, how we ended the other book and like the kinds of things I was interested in doing with a second book. And at some point last year, I had watched the third season of True Detective. Uh, really loved the first one. Didn't watch the second one because people told me I shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and I'm a sheep, I guess. Um, but then I watched the third one. And like I, I like that format of a book with the same or a show with the same name. Kind of has the same vibe. Like the aesthetic is similar. The storytelling is is recognizably of the same type. But, you know, you get, have the freedom of exploring sort of a new cast and a new place and a new time with, with a new crime. Um, I think right. Ed Brubaker's uh, Criminal Series does a somewhat mm-hmm. similar thing, but with kind of more uh, tendons between them. Uh, and like that, that to me, like I, I, I realized then I was like, if I was going to do more of this, this is probably the best approach. Like it doesn't sully the first one. It can stand on its own and be like a fresh access point to people who didn't check out the first one. And it'll give me some freedom to kind of have fun with it. Like if I did another sort of murder mystery with the same cast, like I'd be bored and the book would be bad. And like, I knew that. Um, so I was kind of looking for, the right format and like something with a little freedom to it. And that, that was definitely like the right answer. And I'm glad that that's sort of where I landed on it. Cause there were a couple times where I was, you know, had false starts with not that idea and like re exploring the other kids and it just, it didn't feel right. Um, so like once I had that, like it was really then just about finding the right story to tell. Um, and that took a little bit longer and um, a little more soul searching for lack of a not cheesy way to say it. Um, and I think that that's a different question. So let's come back to that. But to answer your question, that is everything that was on my mind uh, at the idea of doing a sequel. I think that is actually a really good approach. And me being a giant freaking nerd, you know, <laughs> I was thinking about like the Final Fantasy series where it's like, OK, there's like. 15 of these games actually soon to be 16 because i think they announced one Mm -hmm. they're not with the exception of like numbered sequels that are kind of technically offshoots 10 and 10 too exactly like because i remember even my stepdaughter asked me it's like oh so there's 15 of these games out are they all the same story and it's like no but they're informed and there's elements of each one that kind of reminds you that this is a final fantasy but each story for the most part is self-contained and I know it was a little confusing to explain that, but I, I like that idea. Like, and I think it's the perfect way to do it where you're, like you said, your original story isn't sullied. You know, you're not kind of ruining what was already done before, but keeping it fresh. And you did mention soul searching, which I, I do want to kind of get into next because that's an interesting sort of way to phrase approaching the sequel yeah. and knowing your work with no heroin and grief. And I know that your stories tend to be. Uh, very personal and also not even just like as far as the story beats or even the characters, but even just the setting of the stories are very important in your work. So I guess now I don't want to kind of hint at like what you were talking about with like soul searching and what that really means for this book. Well, if, if we could just back up for one second, because there's something you said that I, I want to touch on because it's something I think about a lot. Um, you mentioned Final Fantasy and I'll, I'll, I'll broaden it to sort of more Eastern storytelling. Um, Honestly, maybe even just Japanese storytelling with kind of franchises. Um, something that I love, um, I love Final Fantasy or most of them. I love 
Legend of Zelda, which is you know, obviously another video game. Um, a huge Power Rangers fan, um, you know, Super Sentai. Um, and like one thing that I love that is prevalent in Japanese storytelling, especially for popular media, is that like a lot of them just reboot every single time there's a new iteration. Like almost none of the Legends of Zelda are connected, right? There's there's like four or five different timelines going on there. But I, I like this idea. It's the Legend of Zelda. Like legends are these things that we retell and and they're not always told the same way like you know, think back to like greek mythology you had zeus mm-hmm. and you know in the roman mythology you had had uh, jupiter and like they're similar but they're not the same they're essentially versions of each other and like power rangers every single season is a new team new uniforms new sort of uh trope that they're digging into but kind of like the core elements of it they always have a megazord they always are color coordinated they always have a team attack they always get power up you know exactly it's, it's um and I, I i like that idea and final fantasy is kind of the same way same core concept for the most part um you know it's the jrpg there's, sometimes there's monsters um chocobos like there are in almost all of them right and there's like usually there's something with like crystals or something like that yeah but it's like a a revisiting and reimagining of the elements and i i love that like i think that that keeps things fresh um and it it allows for refining over time too like it's 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 cool to see in storytelling and something i love um so like for me like again like that true detective format really just spoke to me because it's it's big part of the stuff that i love um so now jumping back to your your soul searching question because now i'm asking the questions to myself (laughs) uh soul searching like i said when when i brought it up is like it wasn't like the best phrase for for what happened but like i don't really have the right one um essentially you you hit the nail on the head like when i write a book like it really needs to have a like a personal emotional component for me to really want to dig into so with dead and kids volume one it was sort of childhood trauma and like on lower than the surface like what it's like to grow up in sort of a low income you know area and like you know you know poor kids you know lower class right you know sort of blue collar families um living in small towns kind of like the you know what i grew up knowing with no heroin, it was it was you know a book a book about you know a Buffy type character fighting monsters, but really it was about sort of addiction and recovery and what that journey looks like and the bumps along the way and, and perceptions of it. Um, and you know, grief is sci-fi and horror stories, but about the grieving process. So like everything I write is always centered around something like with strong emotional power to it and and you know a personal angle into it for me to explore and right. It, um, so let me preface what's coming next with sort of the pitch for the suburban job, because that'll inform a lot of what we're about to talk about. Okay. makes sense. Yeah. So dead end kids one, uh, the first volume was, uh, sort of essentially stand by me meets the Hardy boys. It was three kids in 1999 trying to solve their friend's murder. Um, just like I said, stand by me meets the Hardy boys, but with like a, a darker sort of more violent edge to it, sort of a coming of age story for 90 90s kids who are adults now, like myself, really a story about these kids who have really terrible home lives and they're dealing with things that children aren't really prepared to deal with. And they, they get through it by having each other. Like, you know, it doesn't solve their problems, but they have this, this little found family unit that they make and they take care of one another. And it's, now, it's a special story that I think a lot of people who grew up that way can relate to. Uh, so the suburban job is sort of the inverse of that. Uh, it is three kids in 2008 who are all the loved ones, relatives, uh, sons, daughters, uh, brothers of people who died on or because of 9-11. Um, so, oh, wow. So we've got 
Uh, sort of our main, main character is a young woman named Tori. Uh, she is the daughter of a firefighter who died on the scene at Ground Zero on September 11th or 12th. Next up, we got Brian, who is the brother of a young woman who uh, fought in Afghanistan, the army, and, and was killed there more recently than you know, to the story. So a few years after 9-11. And then the, the last of the core cast is a young Pakistani-American woman named Amna. Uh, she's second generation Pakistani American, and she is sort of dealing indirectly and directly with the sort of exacerbated racial tensions against Middle Eastern people in uh, the U.S. after 9-11. You know, they've always kind right. of existed, but like they're, they're very heightened, uh, especially in the years immediately after. So, like, you know, we've got this, this cast of kids. They're each dealing with their own thing. Unlike the kids in volume one, they are dealing with it in silos, uh, all sort of isolated from other people. Uh, They were friends uh, and then life happened and 9-11 happened and they kind of grew apart and fell out. And and now they don't have each other to lean on. So it's very much like the inverse of the first volume. These are kids who don't have anybody and are kind of dealing with it on their own. Um, And then they get thrown into this crime plot. Uh, that the story revolves around and they're forced back into each other's lives and, and have to kind of figure out how to put their bullshit aside and, and, and work together and, and, and maybe reconnect a little bit. Unlike the first book, this one's not a murder mystery. Uh, like I said, I kind of wanted a fresh angle into it, especially for the crime part. Uh, so this book is a heist book. Uh, set in suburbia with kids so um it, it's got hints of four kids walking to a bank but it's very serious and way darker um so uh, those those are the kind of pitches for both and like how one volume will differ than the next so if you you like the first book like it's definitely more of that atmosphere and that storytelling and that darkness uh with some twists on the format if you didn't read the first book it's a totally clean entry with a new cast next to no ties to the original. And if you didn't read the original, you wouldn't catch them anyway. So it's all good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that, that's that. So now I can actually get into answering the question, uh, the soul searching part, uh, finding the sort of emotional angle into the story was, was hard. Um, I kind of like, you know, with, with no heroin, I really dug into something that was a really big one that had been on my mind for a long time. And, and, right. um, getting that off my chest, I had to kind of look for something. Um, but, uh, sort of a conversation I had with my wife over the six years we've been together, it's come up a few times and has been kind of illuminating for me. And, uh, so I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I'm three and a half years older than my wife. She grew up in San Francisco, like in the city. I grew up in like a really low income, poor part of New Jersey. Uh, she grew up in, in, you know, a big city with you know different kinds of cultures and stuff. So like our worldviews are are very different. And there's also an age gap that's not mega significant, but it's yeah, you know, it's significant enough. But like at this age, we're still kind of far apart in terms of age. Like she's still in her twenties. I'm in my thirties. So like there's, she was much younger than I was when nine eleven happened. I was thirteen. She was nine, I think, at the time or ten. Um, so like that's that's a pretty big jump. And, and over the years, we've, we've talked about 9-11 a few times, like, that are very vivid in my mind, like, just, like, what, how different our experiences were. Like, the part of New Jersey I grew up in was a little town called Union Beach. It is on the south shore of the Raritan Bay. Uh, looking north, you can see the lower Manhattan on a clear day. Um, but, yeah, so, like, on 9-11, like, I remember very distinctly, like, 
after I finally mm-hmm. got out of school. And I was one of like, the last people to, to leave school. A lot of people took, a lot of parents took their kids out of school. Everyone walked up to the beachfront in my town and stood on the beach and like looked across and like we could see like the giant plumes of smoke rising. Oh and, my like, God. I mean, it was horrifying. And we had one of those uh, 25 cent like sightseeing binocular guys um, mm-hmm. on, on the uh, on the jetty. And I just remember the line for that was like, two blocks long and like you know i stood in it and i looked across with those magnifying binoculars and like i could see like a lot of what was going on i mean it's, it's really seared in my mind but i had these conversations with my wife and about how like you know her experience on the other coast you know being a little bit younger like it was very different than mine it's a lot it's a little less raw like she doesn't remember the details quite as clearly and 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 it got me thinking about how that day really changed so much i mean there's some really obvious stuff that changed obviously you know, twin towers are gone people died um we went to war uh but like littler things like the, the way we treat other people and 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 the way we travel and and legislation that's passed and is continuing to be passed like it, it really to me that was kind of like the rock dropping into the lake and like the ripples have been coming out ever since. And, and you know, right. And, and it's kind of defined a generation, but it's really something that's touched everybody too. Like people who were older than me, obviously like, you know, there's, there's generational fear and, and stuff for people who were older. Um, there's an entire generation of kids who entered college last fall who were born after 9-11 they've only ever known sort of a post 9-11 world um so like this is really something that is far reaching i mean i even have friends in canada and mexico and, and europe who talk about how that day changed things in their countries like so like it's it's a really really broad but specific net emotionally for telling a story and and i was you know kind of captivated by this idea of exploring those ripples like how did that affect people how you know what what kind of traumas did we carry forward from it you know for me like it's been 20 years and i still think about it probably once a day so and like i said i was i grew up really close to it um and i know people whose parents died in the towers and stuff like that and so it's just once i got the idea i couldn't let go of it like it kind of like followed me around like a ghost and and like i and once something's like that in my head, like I'm going to put it down on paper. Let me make it a point to say that, like, we didn't set out to tell a, a tragedy porn, you know, something that had 9-11 on every pages and, and something right. that was created to make money off of this this heinous, heinous event. Um, it's a story about the, the aftershocks, the ripples uh, in the future. Like it's set in 2008. It's about a really interesting group of kids dealing with the fallout of that in their lives and, and, you know, what the, the kinds of things that people are still continuing to live with to this day, um, Absolutely. And, but still tell a good crime story. Like I, the heist is a very big part of the book. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for people to finally get to read that in the issue. It comes in and, and I had a lot of fun writing it, which, which was something I can't say about the first book. Like I love the first <laughs> book. I, I wrote it and I, I adore it, but it wasn't exactly a fun book to write. Right. It's, it was much more, you know, from my understanding and from speaking to you, it was much more like catharsis, maybe your way of even dealing with things that happened personally and even to people you knew. So I, I, and I guess I definitely understand that maybe there's even like a means to tell a story that's, you know, of course, grounded in reality. Of course, it takes itself seriously to a point, but also is just saying something. So, and I'm actually, and this is probably a weird thing to admit, though, but I'm a huge sucker for heist stories and just heist, you know, elements in general. You know, I guess a lot of us, considering some of those popular podcasts, like I think we all have like a 
well, maybe I shouldn't generalize and say we all, but like a good number of us have a very big fascination with crime. Yeah. So I sure. think that, but I think with the 9-11 aspect, you brought up something and I don't necessarily want to go back too far, but, you know, and you talked about the fact that, you know, you grew up in an area which is very close to Manhattan. Your wife did not. So not even just necessarily the years difference, but also just the perception difference. You know, it's like you and I, we grew up where we're fairly close where you can see the smoke in the background and you don't have to go that far just to see the actual damage that happened in Manhattan versus being on the other coast where it's still scary and it's still affecting people. But it's another thing for those. And again, my condolences to everyone who has died or is still dying just from even the effects of being in that area. You know, that's something I definitely don't want to overshadow and like make light of. But to see that sort of firsthand or even just even be near that, just to even see what was going on, like it, it scarred us. Like I remember even in, as a kid, like I was still like the, the day hadn't even started and like someone ran to the, the room and put on the TV, like not even prefacing anything, just turning it on. And then just that being the first image you see, not even having the ability to like be warned, like what you might see is going to be really screwed up. They just put it on. It's like, you got to see this. That was 20 years ago. Like, and it didn't really dawn on me. And, you know, because 2020, so much stuff was going on. Like, I really didn't really have time to take stock into the fact that that still feels like yesterday, but 20 years. And like you said, kids, now there's kids who were, didn't even experience that. Like, that's how far along it is. And yet it's just, it's still so just fresh in everyone's minds. Yeah. It's, I, I don't really like. Yeah, you know, not to be like too like corny or, or overly emotional about, it, but like I really don't have like, you know, 19, 20 years later, like the words to kind of really talk about like what I went through that day. And like maybe that's a lack of therapy and I could probably fix that. Um, but I think that I think most people probably don't like I think they could could like give you single word answers about emotions, you know, anger, right. fear, stuff like that. But yeah, like this is a huge, especially in the U.S. cultural event that really impacted a lot of people. I know some movies have been made about it and some books, but like, I don't really think a lot has been done to explore how it affected people and like young people. Um, and, and that was, that's kind of like the core of dead end kids. It's, it's looking at childhood trauma through the lens of a crime story. So I like, it just, it all came together. It felt like the right story. Like I said, it was kind of haunting me. Um, and when I sat down to write it, like it came really, like I wrote it really quickly, which, I guess I am a pretty quick writer, but like this, this one kind of came out in like one and a half drafts. Like I knew it was right. Nate, I sent it to Nanad, uh, the artist and colorist. He sent it back and, and like immediately said he wanted to do it. Um, I don't know. It just felt right. Like everything about the book feels right. And is it going to be for everyone? No, of course not. Nothing is. Um, but I, I think if I had to pick, this is the better of the two books. Um, not that I play favorites. Um, so anyone who did like the first one, I think that they're going to get probably a lot more out of this one. Um, and this one's four issues. So we've got a little more canvas to kind of like explore the characters and, and, and really dig in and tell a good story. And, and, it, and like I said, there's there, like as, as daunting and dark as the story is inevitably going to be when people read it. Like there is like a, a bit of fun to it with the heist and, you know, seeing how three kids in, in suburbia with, no car and, and no technology are going to figure out how to do this. You know, it's, it was a fun writing exercise too. 
I also something I thought was really cool, and you know, I'm not going to talk too much about the plot though, but mm. the idea, like you know, people who didn't know each other, who are disconnected, who now have to reconnect, is something that's big with me because you know, as we grow up, we do sort of fall sometimes, even if it's accidentally and just life happening, like drift apart from people, and it's a really hard thing to do. Or sometimes we drift apart because of bad blood, you know, or maybe there's resentment that's not resolved and. That's something I can relate to on a personal level. So it's all relatable. I think you do a good job of sort of respecting like the setting and the significance of that. And I, I think that people are going to be really surprised by what this one does, you know, versus the other. And I, I think people would should just really go ahead and give it a give it a go, which actually I, we probably should mention the book is being released in January, correct? Yeah, yeah. So we're recording this a little bit in advance. Uh, the book was just, we just did our soft announcement, like announcing the book the other day. Right before this releases, we're going to have had done sort of a live stream event to really release all the details, which we can we can dig into in a second since this will be after. It'll solicit in November. It'll run for four issues. Uh, so you can pre-order it starting uh, the, the first day of November, I think, or the last two days of October. Um, the first issue will come out in January, and it'll run until April. Um, and the book is essentially complete at this point, so there's not going to be any hiccups with with printing or anything like that. But yeah, so get out there and pre-order comics. Uh, and, and learn the lesson from Dead End Kids Volume 1. Uh, the book was ordered really strongly. like it was A, a lot of people pre-ordered it. There was not enough copies, not nearly enough copies to go around because everyone wanted the book and if you had pre-ordered it you could have got it the print numbers would have went up and you would have been guaranteed your copy and and you know just take out my soapbox pre-order your damn comics um, <laughs> and I, I don't even care if it's dead and kids of suburban job like if if you just heard about uh scout's honor from david pepos over at aftershock which i'm super excited about you know go pre-order that if you are, are super excited about the, the new Power Rangers series that are coming out starting in November, like I am, that go pro oh, yeah. Like, the, if you hear about a book that gets you excited, do not roll the dice and gamble on being able to pick up a copy when you walk into your shop when it comes out, because there's a good chance, especially on an indie book, that your, your retailer didn't pre-order it. And if it's on your radar, it's probably on somebody else's and you probably aren't going to get it. But if you pre-order it, you're 100% going to get it like short of an act of God, like making your copy get ruined and you know, have to be returned. Um, right. So pre-order your damn comics, pre-order dead and kids, the suburban job, uh, head over to the source point press web store and get the first trade too. Uh, it's 10 bucks. Like we, we worked really hard to make it cheap in price, but good in quality more. If this sounds interesting to you, that that story is just as good uh, and it's available already. Um, and now I'll put my little soapbox away and we can get on with the interview. <laughs> no, but I think it's an important soapbox because it's a lesson that, you know, I even had to learn. And this is something that I will admit that in talking to creators, I'm constantly learning new things myself. Like I definitely don't pretend to come into this being like the leading expert in anything because, you know, stores, only have but so much space and so much um you know like room to sort of sell certain books and you know and it's something that we've always talked about on this podcast is you know indie creators whether it be comics music uh whatever you know there's definitely a bit of an uphill climb to kind of get the word out there so i i you know even though you said you're on your soapbox it's an important one to tell because it lets people know that there's a demand for this stuff and it lets people know hey you know, these are kind of like what my my customers are into. 
And, you know, they could work harder to make sure that they get those bugs because, you know, at the end of the day, like you have to you have to work harder to get stuff out there. It's a grind. Like, I don't want to, like, get like sound all woe is me, but it really is probably the most frustrating thing about being a comic creator is lack of people who do participate in the pre-order system. And I think it's not because they don't want to. I think it's because of a lack of understanding of the importance. Um, and this is something I learned as, as a comic book creator. Shops have a very finite amount of money to pre-order comics, and they have to be really strategic about what they do. Like, no, no one running a comic shop is is a printing press. Like, they're not making money hand over fist, which means they have to be smart. Um, and they buy what sells. Like, you know, you'll walk into any comic shop in the U.S. and they'll probably have at least five copies of a Batman comic when it comes out because they know they'll sell it, and they know that it'll it'll you know collectors will come for it. But you know that weird indie zine that you know somebody printed in their basement that you know cost seven bucks because it was expensive to make like they're not going to probably ever stock that uh because it it won't sell so when you have an indie creator whose first book is coming out you know you sort of roll the dice like you're gonna take the the temperature of the room by seeing if your customers are pre-ordering it and then that's it's it's sort of a chicken or the egg scenario too because retailers will order something if they think customers will be interested in it, but customers will buy it if retailers have it. Um, and it's it's definitely a fine line between making sure readers know to pre-order, but also knowing, you know, that retailers need to to get on board too and 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 let their their people know about it. And, and it's it's tough and it's an imperfect system, which is part of the reason why it doesn't work well. Um, but it is the system we have right now. And if you're listening to this and you don't pre-order books, definitely pre-order books. Uh, it's it's how you'll let your retailer know that the book is is worth looking into. Right? One pre-order puts it on a retailer's radar. Two you know, piques their interest. And if, if three people in the store pre-order a book, they'll say, Hey, maybe I should get some more of this. Maybe there's some heat on it. And and now that I've had two books come out that were really well received and really well ordered as indie books, you know, Dead and Kids 2 is in a, a better position than Dead and Kids 1 was because I know the retailers, people know my work, they know the series. But that that doesn't mean that people don't have to pre-order. Like I would still get out there and pre-order the book if if I wanted it. Like that's there's no guarantees. No, and there's very few guarantees on pretty much anything, but you know, that, I guess that's just life. And oh my gosh, and I there's I'm trying to kind of keep from like buzzwords because I didn't want us to be like, oh, these are interesting times or these are uncertain times, but it's batshit insane Elseworlds nonsense when it comes down to it. Flat out bullshit. If, if I could just be, speak freely, but you, you I think may. that. <laughs> but I think with this book, I I'm really excited to see, of course, what happens you know, what's coming up. And like, I, I want to talk about so much, but obviously, you know, I want people to read it because if I start blabbing, then well, all, all of our work about pre-ordering is going to go completely out of the window. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, what? it's, it's, it, that's, that's interesting to me. Cause one of the things that I've done as a creator is I've been pretty generous about sharing digital copies with people for, for no cost. It doesn't cost me anything. Right. Like if somebody says they couldn't find a copy of the book, like that sale is lost anyway because they can't find the book. So me throwing them the PDF of number one on me helps them out. Literally costs nothing to share a PDF. And then maybe they'll buy the trade later or or maybe they'll track down the series because they really like they'll be willing to pay the eBay price because they liked it so much and they want to own it. Um, I don't think anybody should be giving away their stuff to just anyone for for just no reason. But I think that there's a lot of strategic value as a creator to to share your work and, and onboard people 
who might be on the fence or, or, you know, have barriers to entry, like not having a comic shop nearby or something like that. So like, yeah, if the book was out, I'd be okay with, with definitely talking about the, the ins and outs of the plot. Uh, and I think there's value in that, but I, you know, at the same time, like not everybody wants everything spoiled. So it's okay to give everybody a spoiler warning before you do it. Uh, no worries. Well, I'm definitely not going to throw up a spoiler warning because again, I do respect everybody. And again, I, I want to make sure that I'm not throwing it away, but Again, I'm a sucker for a good crime story. And the fact that, like you said, these are a group of kids who, you know, no card. These aren't exactly, you know, pros. This isn't like, <laughs> you know, this isn't exactly like a, a professional team here. And I think that there's, there's a little bit, there's some charm to that, you know? And like I said, even if the book isn't necessarily meant to be like funny per se, but it does kind of raise the stakes because you're dealing with people who are inexperienced, who are trying to get something done. And I think that just makes for a more interesting story. I, I was surprised at how much I liked the end product um, that we're, we're producing. Like I'm, I'm very critical of my own stuff, like analytical. And, and I do a lot of revisions and, and throughout the creative process, like I, to, even like in the 11th hour when we're lettering i'm changing dialogue and ruining sean's life um <laughs> and and it's just because i want to make the best book possible and like you know sometimes i step away from the thing after it's done and like ah i would have did this differently i would do that differently but I, I try not to dwell like that but i definitely do do it um but with this book i, I haven't felt that way yet like we, you know we're still we're still in the home stretch on on production in some aspects but it's it just feels right. Like I'm excited about it. I, I like, like I said, I like this one better than the first one. It's, it's got more of a laser focus. The, the emotional engine of it is, is a little more clear to me. Um, I've, I've shared the, the first couple issues with a few people and like they've, they've had nothing but really nice things to say, which I appreciate. But like, it's interesting the things they've said that they've liked, they've been pretty different from one, one person to the next. And it, it just kind of reassures me about the sort of wide reach of the the big net we cast. You know, it's it's right. It's going to speak to different people in different ways. Like I particularly identify with with Tori, who's you know lost her her father at Ground Zero. He's a firefighter. I I grew up in a family of firefighters. You know, Irish Catholic, fourth generation, and like we're all firefighters. I'm not. Uh, but like my brother's a firefighter, my sister's an EMT, my my dad's a firefighter, um, my grandfather's a firefighter. I mean, like it is really, you know, I people in my family went to Ground Zero, like they were called in to 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 assist with the the rescue effort and stuff like that. So like it speaks to me in like a really specific way. So so anyone whose family is is involved in any of you know EMS or, or fire or police or something like that will 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 be able to kind of resonate with that a little bit, I think. Um, but right. you know. Not everybody, you know, I think maybe Brian's story is going to speak to a lot of people like I, you know, I can relate to Brian as well, too. Like uh, he lost his sister in Afghanistan. I had a friend who lost his brother in, in Iraq. And, you know, that was later, obviously. Uh, but I, I got it. I think a lot of people know people who, who died overseas. Like we lost lots and lots of people fighting that war. Um, and and I th I'm sure a lot of people felt the anger Brian's feeling and, and the, the sadness and, and the sort of lostness of it all. Um, so like, I just, I don't know, like I could speak all day about the things I love about this book and, you know, maybe, maybe they're not going to land very, very impactfully when I say them because I wrote it. But, uh, now I hope people will check this book out. Like I said, if you love the first one, this is this is a an adrenaline shot of of the same thing, but with new twists and turns. It's a fresh start for people who didn't check out the first one. I think it's special. I really do. I want to close on this. I actually think that it's 
important that you as a creator and I mean, granted, I'm not a comic creator. I do podcasts. And I think that in some way that a good chunk of creators, you know, whatever you that you actually create, there's always a little bit of like, you know, there's this worry that, you know, as you're working on your craft, there's like, oh, my gosh, is this really going to like be any good? At least with me, like, you know, then you step away and come back going, man, this was a lot better than I thought it was. And there's, you know, you do worry about your work, but I also like when creators are excited, you know, and it's definitely healthy to at least admit that you go into this with a little bit of trepidation, but the fact that you're proud and you're excited about what you made and that to say that it's even like, you know, one of your favorite things that you've ever done. And because you were so excited about it, you actually even went into it with, like you said, a much more laser focus. And I think that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear when creators can say that they're proud of their work. You know, we're, you know, we're all worried about like our egos and coming off as like blowhards, but no, cause if you're not excited, then people aren't going to be excited to check it out. So by all means, celebrate that, dude. Yeah. No, 100%. And like, and look, I, I get it. Like there is definitely like an arrogance to saying that you like the thing you made and that people should check it out. And like, I think there, there's a difference between being arrogant about it and, and being passionate about it. And like, right. I, I believe in this story. I love it. Like, now, if you don't want to check out, don't like save your four dollars and spend it on a, on a book you do want to check out. But I, I think that this is a good book. Like, I and I've got a, a track record of of putting out books that people dig. Like, you know, that that's the arrogant way of saying it, but it's it's also true. <laughs> um, so look, it's it is what it is. Um, I'm excited. I, I I love the story, and I think that a lot of people will dig it, and and that they'll be excited too. And we didn't even talk about the, the covers for the book, which got one of my books like i've just been so incredibly lucky that we've just had these insane incentive and exclusive variants that that have come out for dead and kids and, and no heroin with like oh the no heroin ones my god those those that was some awesome shit yeah yeah more of that with this series obviously um less less than with other ones but more of it on the first so just Real quick on the creative team. Um, it's a, it's a heist book, so we had to get the team back together. You know, you know <laughs> son of a bitch, I'm in. Um, so, <laughs> nice. So we've got Chris on covers again. Um, we've got Nanette on uh, interiors and colors, and Sean on letters, and uh, you know that's that's the original core team. Uh, Chris has turned out some some amazing covers for the book. Uh, if you remember the the first series, we had that really awesome sort of uh, clean design with the white band and the logo and 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 the the art. Great design, I love it. Um, we we have that again for these covers, kind of you know keeping with the series. Uh, but the the art is a little bit different in some directions and kind of fresh, but while still looking pretty similar. Um, the first cover, I don't want to ruin the covers for anyone's, but uh, so we got Chris back in covers. We have two incentive covers on the first series. I did my okay. first incentive cover on New Heroin. It was a Ben Temple Smith uh, one in five incentive that did really well. That people really liked, uh, and I like working with Ben. Uh, and people were asking me all the time if we were going to do other one in fives, if we were going to do a one in ten. You know, it's, pe people really love their their incentive variants and their their exclusives and stuff like that. Um, so I listened to the people. So we're going to do a one in five cover for every issue. With art by Ryan Kincaid, who did a really great cover for No Heroin, who's done some stuff for DC recently. That's just killer. Um, so Ryan's doing a one in five cover for each issue of the four issues. Uh, and all four of those covers are going to be connecting. So they'll make one larger issue when you get all of them or one larger image, rather. 
and that looks awesome. It's just, it's a really, really great set of covers. And I'm, I'm excited for people to finally get to see uh, the second one because we released the image of the first one. Uh, but seeing how they connect or start to connect this is pretty cool. Uh, and then we're going to do for the first issue a one in 10 incentive by my buddy Ben Templesmith. It's just sort of tradition at this point to have a Templesmith cover on my books and he keeps <laughs> doing them for me. So, and this, this one is just, just gorgeous classic Templesmith, uh, really kind of spooky uh, imagery, really just great stuff. Um, so we've got sort of really cool stuff for the retailers. Um, there are some exclusives for retailers. I'm not sure names I can name, but there will be five. SourcePoint Press will put on a, a set of exclusive covers. Okay. Uh, Exchange Comics and Collectibles will have a set of one through four. Hive Comics or yeah, Hive Comics will have a, a set of four and then a couple of surprises down the line. But um you know, we wanted to really hone in on making sure we got exclusives with partners who are, are really good partners for, for SourcePoint Press and myself. Um, and that would commit to doing sets of them because I'm, I'm a sucker for sets of covers. Like I think <laughs> that that is the best way to do a variant. Um, there, there's some really great artists in the mix. Um, I can't name any of them yet. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So like it's just going to be really cool covers for collectors, really great story for people who just want to read it. For for the speculator crowd, um, I really can't say almost anything about this, but I can say that uh, Dead End Kids, I can call it a franchise now, is with someone in Hollywood, uh, not optioned, but uh, out there for being optioned. And then there have been some conversations with producers and stuff like that. So, it, it, you know, there's there's a lot of potential there for for the spec crowd, too. So there's a little something for everyone. Um, and Very cool. I, yeah, I keep saying this, but I'm, I'm excited. No, I'm glad you're excited because then I'm excited too, and and in turn, listeners are excited. Right? It's like if I wasn't excited, would I really have you on? Like, I'm sorry, this isn't like you know, like oh, we're gonna do like this guest spot on like you know your local affiliate, and they're like, we just need to fill some time. Nah, hell, (laughs) hell with all that. No, I'm excited too because I've really enjoyed your work, and between Dead End Kids. You know, grief and no heroin, especially like that one. I thought was like I at that time, like I that was that really hit hard. I think it was a really good story, and I think this is just going to continue along with just that streak of just really good stuff that also says something. Because, um, matter of fact, your name came up um on an episode I just did with David Pepos about uh VOZ, and like I think the quote you had told him was basically it's like gritty book that's that's saying something. It's not just dark for the sake of being dark. It's not gritty for the sake of being gritty. And like you said, it's not tragedy porn. I mean, it definitely hits on some like deep subjects, but it's still entertaining. And it also has a message. And for that, I will always appreciate your work. And I know there's a lot of stuff coming out that we can't talk about just yet since we're not early in previews. But if people do want to kind of like follow along the progress, uh, where would be like the best place for them to kind of like make sure that they stay in the loop? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the very best place, uh, as always, is, is my newsletter. I do a twice a month newsletter called Caption Boxes. Uh, and it really is just a distilled version of what I've got going on. Um, I'm pretty open in there, too. Like I've been talking about Dead End Kids probably for about a year now in there in some form or another, teasing it and speaking directly about it. Um, so anyone who subscribes to that has, has seen some of the covers already and has some some of the interior pages. Like it, it's, it's definitely like the best way. And I also, tr- you know, Giving up your email to, to somebody you don't know very well is, yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, so I try to make it worth people's while. We do exclusives on the newsletter, you know, if you're a cover collector, you know, lots of, lots of info, um, and, and just really just kind of my open thoughts about everything. But, uh, you know, for, for people who don't want to give up their email address, totally get that. Uh, I've got Twitter, I've got Instagram, I've got Facebook. Everything is just, you know, 
slash Frank Ogle, you know, Twitter slash Frank Ogle, Instagram.com slash Frank Ogle, Facebook slash Frank Ogle. Uh, on Facebook, I just have a personal account. Um, but I really don't mind people sending me friend requests if they're fans of the work or they're creators and they want to you know, pick my brain or whatever. I'm, I'm all about connecting and engaging. Um, so yeah, as long as you're not like flying a swastika up in your profile picture, I'll, I'll give most people the benefit of the doubt and happy to do it. Um, <laughs> but again, I think the the newsletter by far is the best. Um, there's links to it on everything. I post a lot of links to it on, on Facebook. There's links in my bio on Twitter and uh, Instagram to it to, to sign up and you get a free digital copy of dead end kids number one when you sign up. So like, yeah, value off the bat. You can just sign up for the newsletter, get the comic and hop off the newsletter. If you want a free comic, like, I mean, yeah, if you, if you want to play the system, that's fine. Read, read, dead, read dead end kids. Number one. It's like, you know, the first taste is free. The rest is going to cost you though. <laughs> oh man. I know I keep threatening it, but at some point we got to get into that power Rangers super sentai talk though, because you know, that's something I could probably ramble on for hours, but I want to get the word out about this book. And again, thank you so much for taking the time out. Uh, I know you've been like super busy. So anytime that anyone's willing to sit down and talk to me about their stuff or whatever, it's, it's something I, I never take for granted. So again, I appreciate you so much. You got it all wrong, man. You got it all wrong. I, I'm sure I said this last time and I say it at the end of every single podcast because I mean it. Thank you. Uh, you are taking time out of your Saturday afternoon right now. You are going to edit and and post and you know, promote this thing. All I had to do is sit and talk about myself for an hour. Um, yeah, you, you built your audience and I'm getting to take advantage of that. And, and I know that and I appreciate that. So thank you. Likewise. And, you know, I hope everybody enjoyed that and definitely check out Danny Kids too. You heard the links. Definitely follow it. And, you know, like you said before, definitely pre-order your stuff. Um, before we head out, though, just want to let you know that Agent Has Issues can be found on agenthasissues.com, where you could download and stream all of our episodes. We're also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, uh, pretty much anywhere where you can find really good podcasts. And thank you for listening. And I will end this episode by asking a question. Every creator has a story. What's yours? We'll see you next time. For more great podcasts, visit adrianhasissues.com.